Let's ask God to help us understand his word. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given us your word, the Bible. We thank you that it exposes the truth about us and about you. And we thank you so much that there is good news in your word, the good news of Christ and what he has done for us. Please help us this morning to understand more deeply how good your good news is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a story I think I've told you before about a pastor who came to a new church. He preached his first sermon and it was really challenging. People were impressed. Uh, then the next Sunday came, people came to church expectantly, but he preached the same sermon again. And again the next Sunday. And again the next. Finally, the elders of the church approached him. They said, Pastor, we really like your sermon. But why are you preaching the same sermon over and over and over again? The pastor said, what I'm doing, I'm waiting for you to act on this first one. Once you start doing what I've said, then I'll move on to the next sermon. It's a little bit like that with this book of Romans. Uh, This is now the fourth week in a row where the book of Romans has said the same thing. Over and over again, the topic has been the same. Everyone needs to be rescued from God's anger on our sin. Over and over again, for the last 63 verses, Paul has been driving home the same point. We all need to be rescued from God's anger on our sin. Let's, uh, let's quickly take, a, take a, a guided tour back through where we've been so far. Paul started off his letter by talking about the gospel. Do you remember the good news about how Jesus died and rose again as king of the world? And we saw... At the beginning of the letter, some of the impact of the gospel in Paul's own life. We saw that his whole life has been transformed by this gospel. Even his very identity, do you remember, is is driven by the gospel. He describes himself as Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ, set apart for the gospel. We saw also that Paul's prayers are based upon the gospel, rooted in the gospel. He thanks God for the faith of the Romans. He prays that he can come and encourage them as Christians. We saw also that Paul's plans, the the way he shapes his life, is growing out of this gospel as well. He plans his life around helping people to become Christians and to stand firm as Christians. And then in chapter 1, verses 14 to 17, Paul gave us the reason why his life has been so transformed. He says... I'm obligated by the gospel. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And why? Because it is God's power to rescue people who put their trust in Jesus. And that's when Paul started this long 63-verse section about God's anger on our sin. He says, that is what people need to be rescued from. And then he shows exactly why it is right that God's anger should come onto all people. First of all, he deals with people who don't know about God from the Bible. He says they are without excuse for their sin. They know enough about God from creation to be without excuse. Then Paul deals with those, those people who do know something about God and what he wants. He talks about moral people, people like you and me. Paul says that moral people don't act in line with what they know. We know what is right, but we don't do what is right. 
And so we're also without excuse before God. Then last week, we saw Paul deal with God's people, the Jewish people. He said, being Jewish won't rescue you from God's anger on your sin either. Jews have God's law, but they don't obey God's law. And so God's anger is rightly coming onto them as well. Well, now in chapter 3 and verse 9, Paul starts to summarise. He's still addressing Jewish people in verse 9, and he asks the question, are we any better then? He's already said that Jews have certain advantages over Gentiles. They've got, uh, particularly in Paul's day, they had the Old Testament, which most other people didn't have. The question is, though, does this give them any advantage on Judgment Day? Paul's answer is no. As he's now been saying at great length, everyone has sinned. That is the, the charge, the long charge that Paul has laid against everyone, against all people. He says everyone is under sin, under the power of sin, slaves to sin. We can't help ourselves but sin. Romans chapter 3 and verse 9. Romans 3 and verse 9. What shall we conclude then? Are we Jews any better? Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. And then to back up what he's been saying, Paul goes to the Old Testament. And he pulls out a whole heap of verses from the Old Testament and strings them together. The first quote is from a couple of Psalms, 14 and 53, and also from the book of Ecclesiastes. They say that no one is in the right with God. Why? Because people don't understand God. They don't seek God. They've turned away from God. No one does the good that God wants. And so no one is in the right with God. Verse 10, as it is written, and here's the quote, There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul then pulls together some quotes from some other psalms. And from these quotes he shows that people are sinful and destructive in the way that they speak. Our uh, throats, our mouths, our tongues, our lips, all distorted by sin. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Next, Paul turns to the book of Isaiah, this time talking about people's actions, where we go, what we do, the sort of way we live our lives. Paul shows from Isaiah that our actions are also selfish and destructive. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. And then finally, Paul gets to the heart of the problem by quoting from Psalm 36. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Well, it's pretty clear, isn't it? Paul's not pulling any punches here. We are thoroughly sinful and God is not happy. But before we go into the last couple of verses, it's worth noting a few things here about uh, these quotes that Paul's pulled together. Firstly, Notice that this whole sin business is not Paul's idea. Some people seem to go on as if 
what Paul is saying here in Romans about sin is really a reflection on him. Like he had some psychological problems, some too great sensitivity, too, too weak a conscience before God or something like that. But this, is, this passage shows that it's not Paul's idea at all. You can see right through the Old Testament exactly what Paul is talking about. Uh, secondly, notice, notice the essence of sin here. The essence of sin is about the way we treat God. And nowadays, people seem to think that if your behaviour doesn't impact on other people, doesn't hurt other people, then you can do anything you want. Or people think of the seriousness of their sin in terms of how it impacts on other people or maybe how it compares with the sins of other people. But that's not all there is to sin. In fact, it's not even the most serious part of sin. At its root, sin is not just about us and other people. At its root, sin is about us and God. And so, verse 11, we don't seek God. Verse 12, we've turned away from God. Verse 18, we fear, we don't fear God. It's actually very important because when you start to realise this, you can start to see something about how serious sin actually is. Again, I think I've used this illustration before, but a, a thousand years ago there was a guy by the name of Anselm and he used this particular illustration. He said, he said imagine you are standing before God. The God who made you, the God who made the whole universe, the God whose honour is more valuable than anything else in the whole universe. He said, imagine you are standing before this God and God says to you, don't look over there. Anselm says, what is there in the whole universe that you could give to pay for your sin and for the dishonour you do to God if you look over there? Do you see the point? We think of our sins as little sins. But there's no such thing because we forget who we're sinning against. Even so-called little sins are sin against a very, very big God. And they are deadly serious. That's the second thing. Notice that sin is a sin against God. Thirdly, notice the the pervasiveness of sin. In verses 13 to 18, our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouths, our feet, our ways, our knowledge, our eyes, they're all infected, all distorted by sin, all ugly and, 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 and uh, distorted by sin. Sin goes right through us. It affects every part of us. It affects our thoughts, our words, our actions, our inactions. We are thoroughly sinful, sinful through and through. Nothing that we do is, is unimpacted by the sin of our hearts. And finally, notice, notice the main point that Paul is making, the universality of sin. Everyone is sinful. There are no exceptions to the rule. Verse 10, there's no one who's righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God all have turned away. There's no one who does good, not even one. Is he clear enough? It's not just murderers and rapists and paedophiles he's talking about here. He's not just talking about Adolf Hitler and Saddam Hussein. It's everyone. It's you. It's me. 
We're all sinful. God's anger is rightfully coming on to every single one of us. We all need to be rescued. But then in verse 19, Paul turns back to the Gentiles, uh, to people who aren't Jewish. And he says, his reasoning goes something like this. He says, look, if Israel can't get right with God, then there's nobody who can. If the Australian cricket team can't win the Ashes, then certainly the Chatswood Presbyterian team is not going to be able to win the Ashes, is the sort of logic of what he's saying. The Jews have got God's law. They've got the Old Testament. They know what God wants. If they can't get right with God, well then... The whole world is just going to have to be silent on Judgment Day. The whole world is going to be accountable to God. If the Jews can't do it, then nobody can do it. Verse 19. Now we know that whatever the Old Testament law says, it says to those who are under the law, the Jewish people, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. And in the light of that, Paul tells us what God's law in the Old Testament is really all about. It is not a way for people to get right with God. Knowing the Ten Commandments is not going to save you. All it is going to do is show us how far short we fall of what God wants. It shows us how deep our sin really is. Verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the Old Testament law. Rather, Through the law, we become conscious of sin. You don't have to think too hard about it to realise it's true, do you? A while ago, I was having a chat to a non-Christian couple and uh, asking them about how they think they can get into heaven. And uh, one of them said to me that she thinks she's been very obedient to God's commands and so should be okay on the last day. Until we started to think about God's commands. Let's think about it. Do you think you can get right with God by obeying his commands? Let's just think about God's first command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Papa. You don't even need to think about the other 612, do you? We're already in trouble with the first one. We're already gone on the first one. God's law cannot save us. All God's law can do is show us how ridiculously short of God's standards that we fall. Okay, 63 verses later. Are you getting the point? (laughs) Four weeks down the track. Do you realise now that God is angry with us for our sin, that we need Jesus to rescue us? It's such a simple point really, isn't it? You can say it in a sentence or two. We need to be rescued from God's anger on our sin. Why do you reckon then that Paul is so repetitive about it. Why do you think he spends 63 verses telling us what he could tell us in one sentence? Why do you think Paul goes on and on and on and on about it? Well, I think there are at least four good reasons why Paul goes on and on about uh, sin and God's anger. The first reason is this. You and I find it so hard to believe It is so unnatural for us to think of ourselves as sinners. It is so unnatural for us to think that God is angry with us. You know, I have never met a non-Christian who seriously thinks they're going to hell. I've never met a non-Christian who seriously thinks that God is angry with them. Now, People, of course, realise that they don't always do the right thing, but 
they don't realise they are so bad they deserve God's anger. They don't think that that sort of thing could be true. In fact, I even find this sort of thinking inside the church. We don't naturally think of ourselves as sinners who deserve God's anger. We think sinners are some other really bad people. Maybe people we see on TV, in the news or something like that. But the Bible is very clear about it. Paul has gone on and on and on about it. It's not just the people out there, it's you and me. A while ago there was a bloke who used to write for the London Times newspaper. He wrote a series of articles about all of the terrible things that were happening in society at the time. And he used to end every article with the same statement. He used to say, what's wrong with the world? A Christian by the name of G.K. Chesterton wrote a famous reply. It went like this. Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Faithfully yours, G.K. Chesterton. We don't naturally see that the problem was with us, but that's the truth. And Paul wants to make sure we know it. And so for 63 verses, he tells us about it. The second reason I think Paul goes on and on about this is the fact that we are idolatrous. We naturally suppress the truth about the real God and we love to invent gods, invent idols that we are more comfortable with. Idols who don't care about our sin. Idols who are love in a fairy floss kind of a way. Idols who aren't holy. Idols who don't judge, who don't get angry. It's absolutely amazing. One of the most famous Bible scholars of last century was a bloke by the name of C.H. Dodd. Now, he wrote a commentary on this book of Romans, carefully translated it out of the Greek and wrote comments about it. And at the end of his careful study of the Greek text of these last 63 verses, this was his conclusion. Of course, God is not personally angry with us for our sin. He said, Paul uses the word anger not to describe the attitude of God to man but to describe an inevitable process of cause and effect in a moral universe. Seems Paul wasn't repetitious enough to get through to C.H. Dodd. He needed to say it a few more times. Of course, it wouldn't matter how often he said it, would it? We hate the idea of an angry God. We are ingenious at inventing idols who aren't angry. And so Paul goes to such great lengths to convince us of the truth about the real God. A third reason I think that Paul goes on and on is this. It's only as we realise our sin and God's anger that we will respond rightly to the good news about Jesus. It is only then that we'll see our deep need of the gospel. It's only then that we'll stop with our self-justifications. It's only then that we'll give up on our own righteousness. It's only then that we'll stop pretending that some ritual or churchianity is going to save us. It is only then that we will approach God with humility. It's only then that we will say to God, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. We will never realise how good the good news is unless we understand the bad news. We will never realise how beautiful it is to be rescued by Jesus unless we realise that we need to be rescued. We need the black background to appreciate the precious jewel of the gospel. That's the third reason 
why Paul has spent so much time on this. Not because he wants to depress us about sin, but because he wants, wants us to appreciate the magnificence of what Jesus has done for us. The final reason is this. It's only, it's only as we understand sin and God's judgment that we can relate rightly to other people. Now, that's true of our relationships with other Christians. We come to church from all different kinds of backgrounds. Some of us are old, some are young. Some are rich, some are not so rich. Some are fat, some are skinny, some are smart, some are not so smart. We come from different races, we come from different cultures. But here in church, there is a profound unity. We are united together, every single one of us, no matter who we are, as sinners. As sinners who are rescued on exactly the same basis. Only because of Jesus and what he has done. That should impact the way we relate to each other. It means there's no room for favouritism in church. It means there's no room for boasting. No room for pride or arrogance. It means we need to treat each other as equals, as fellow rescued sinners. And as fellow rescued sinners, well, we should know enough about ourselves and each other to be able to say sorry when we hurt each other. To be able to be quick to forgive each other as God has forgiven us. We ought to know that we need each other to help each other stand firm, trusting in Jesus to the end. Uh, this unity, of course, is reflected in, in, in the Lord's Supper as well, isn't it? We all share together in the same bread and, and, and juice in our case. Why? Because we share in the same Jesus. We're all sinners rescued by this same Jesus. You're not going to get a bigger bit if you're rich. You're not going to get a bigger bit if you're skinny. We're together in this. United and equal. It's vital that we understand what Paul says here about our sin. It is key to our relationships with each other. And it's also key to our relationships with non-Christians. I don't know about you, but as I, as I go about my daily business, I don't normally think of the people around me as sinners facing the anger of God. I guess uh, if I notice people at all in my self-absorbed little universe, it's not usually with that kind of thing in mind. I'm usually thinking about people's outward appearance, what they look like, what they're wearing. I see people as competitors, as people who have stuff that I want or who are in the way of what I want or in my way in the traffic or something. I don't think about people theologically. I don't see their need. I don't see them as sinners facing God's anger. And I guess that's why I'm so unlike the Apostle Paul. I guess that's why I don't passionately pray gospel prayers for people as I should. I guess that's why I don't plan my life around the gospel in the way that he did. I guess that's why I'm so often ashamed of the gospel. I forget this simple fact. The people around me need rescuing. Well, that's our fourth week on this topic of God's anger on our sin. But I hope we're not like that church I talked about at the beginning. I hope we don't need to hear this for another four weeks. I hope that what Paul is saying here is starting to seep into us. It's starting to shape the way we think. 
It's starting to shape the way we think about God and ourselves and each other and the people outside. There, outside. I hope we realise now how desperate is the need of people to be rescued. I hope we're convinced by that now. And I hope it's helping us. I hope it's helping us to be able to say with Paul and to live with Paul, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is God's power to rescue people. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the great news about Jesus and what he has done. We acknowledge that we need Jesus. There is nothing in our hands that we bring. We simply can cling to his cross. Our sinful self, our only shame, our glory, all the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.